0: Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas.
1: Shiloh Brooks in Boulder, Colorado, from the University of Colorado.
2: And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland.
0: We are back with more Iliad by Homer. We are on to book four. Shiloh's going to give a little overview of the book, and Jeff's going to start us off with an opening question. All you, Shiloh. Yeah,
1: so at the beginning of this book, we... uh, Zoom back out off of the uh, battlefield, and we go back up to Olympus where the gods are discussing the uh, future of the war. Because if you remember, at the end of Book Three, um, Paris was swept off the field by Aphrodite, Menelaus, and Agamemnon were under the impression that that mean- meant that the war was over, they had won Helen, and they were going to kind of head back home. But at the beginning of Book Four, um, there's some debate among the gods, Zeus, Hera, and Athena, whether the war should actually end or not. Zeus appears to want the war uh, to be over, although there's some question he may want it to continue. Um, Athena and Hera definitely want the war to continue, so Zeus agrees to let that go. And what happens is that Athena goes down and says, okay, well, to get this party started all over again, I'm going to persuade a Trojan uh, archer to shoot an arrow into Menelaus, and it nearly, uh, as it's shot, it almost kills him, but Athena moves the arrow aside such that it only goes through his belt, his girdle, and draws blood, but doesn't go deep into him, and uh, the, the uh, Greeks are, are initially quite scared that Menelaus is going to die, and he shows them, no, the wound is not so bad, um, and so they call a medic, and the medic sort of heals him up. But then this gets Agamemnon moving and he goes through uh, the troops and talks to many of the leaders among the uh, Greeks in various ways for instance, he seems to shame Achilles um, in an odd way given what a great man or, sorry uh, Odysseus given what a great man Odysseus is and others he talks to in various other ways to try to motivate them and so that's where uh, that's
2: where we where we pick up in book four yeah thanks Shiloh so The will of Zeus was fulfilled, right? That's one of the things we get at the very beginning of this story, right? The subject is the wrath of Achilles, but the wrath of Achilles has its effects through the will of Zeus. And for me, here is one of these places where we really see Homer telling us about how the will of Zeus gets carried out. And it's kind of surprising to me. Uh, It gets carried out by Zeus lying to the other gods. Right? And so I, I wondered, um, in particular, because when we talked about books, uh, especially book one, um, we framed the anger of Achilles, the wrath of Achilles in terms of his mortality, right? And we um, indicated how things might be especially bad for these human beings who are very aware that they're mortal and are very much interested in achieving some kind of immortal greatness. Well, now we've got an immortal And yet we see him operating the way a human being might operate, lying, um, using duplicity to make sure that this um, conflict continues so that uh, his promise to Thetis can be kept and so that Achilles can make the Greeks feel his absence on the battlefield. So I guess the thing I just wanted to start with um, is why does Zeus lie? And it's a tough question because it's a kind of counterfactual. How would he do it by force? But that might even be a good way to start. And then, you know, is there some connection then or some resemblance between Zeus's behavior and Agamemnon's behavior to continue our theme of um, redeeming or at least trying to understand Agamemnon as the leader? So, yeah, why does Zeus lie and is is it a problem?
0: It's something, I mean, it seems like... It's hard for me to not put on, like, Marine Corps land hat uh, a little bit on stuff like this. Like, on the first place, you have in the last book, you know, Hector chastising Paris in front of people, right? Which is something that, as a leader, like, aphoristically, doctrinally, you're not supposed to do, right? It's it's praise in public and, uh, you know, condemn in private kind of thing. But here we have uh Hector you know the the de facto leader of the Trojans calling out his brother uh you know right out of the gate and you know we're gonna see this like Shiloh said with Agamemnon in this book as well where he's calling out Odysseus and so something is something's weird there but it's also something around uh alliances maybe something around like telling allies what they want to hear uh, or telling them something that will get them to do what you want them to do for what you think of as the greater good. Uh, And so that's having done some joint, tours, um, you know, I, I've never lied to allies, but there's definitely been a few things where it's like you don't you really need to know all the details <laughs> about what's going on here. Um, so this is what I'll tell you. And so I'm wondering if, you know, zooming back out to just kind of human interaction in general, uh, you know, is there something here with, um, you know, when you have power, when you're in charge in some way, but it's, it's an alliance, you know, are you called upon to kind of obfuscate occasionally to keep things on an even keel versus kind of duking it out and, and potentially destroying that alliance?
1: Can we, can, with respect to this, I I agree with you, Brian, that this is um, uh, the behavior of a certain sort of leader in a in a position of uh, trying to negotiate alliances and these sorts of things, can we say, therefore, related to Jeff's question, what is Zeus's motive for lying? I don't fully understand, and and I guess I'm wondering, Jeff, do you mean to imply somehow, and maybe I'm drawing too much here, but that Zeus is rooting for Achilles because he's made some kind of promise to his mother. Uh, but not merely uh, motivated by the promise, but motivated by the injustice done to the man. I mean, I'm just trying to understand, is there something here that, because when you are doing what Brian says, and there's these alliances, and you have an intention, and so you're doing this for a reason, and you either have a moral reason or some desire or appetite, and I'm curious what, how you see Zeus navigating this. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I don't see Zeus being sympathetic to the... Um... Uh, thoughts behind Achilles' desire that the Greeks feel harm at his absence, right? So I'm not. it's not clear to me that Zeus, for example, wants Achilles rather than Agamemnon to be the leader of the Greeks. Um, that seems like a, um, I don't know, exclusively might be too strong, but a primarily human question. But it does look to me like Zeus has given his word, and there's some claim that when he nods his head, um, in the kind of ritual way that Thetis extracts the promise from him, uh, it's inviolable, right? Um, so he, he has some interest, I think, in presenting himself as capable of binding himself, right? And then once he's bound himself, it looks like he wants to act accordingly, right? And then I, I think I see two roads. One would be um, to say to the gods, all right, this conflict is going to continue. Um, you'll all act accordingly or I will harm you right, in the way that Zeus is strong enough to at least temporarily harm the other gods, or he can um, uh, kind of raise their ire in the way that he does do in book four and get what looks like willing um, cooperation with his will, at least initially, right? He's not going to be able to get uh, Hera on board throughout the whole book. There are going to be uh, difficulties in his management of her, but his his opening move, I think, is to... Um, claim that he has a view that he does not have in order to incite her anger and Athena's anger. Um, And so it's just interesting to me. It looks like um, even gods have the tyrant's problem, that you can't simply make human beings think what you want them to think. You can't simply make gods think what you want them to think. You have to be indirect if you want them to be... um, willing or partly willing um, partners in your endeavor. Right. And that's ju- that's just interesting to me. Um, it means that uh, the things that are constraining Agamemnon's behavior, there might be no no way around them. Right. There might be no uh, human possibility if there's no divine possibility to simply puppet other human beings on this scale. Um, but yeah, I, I don't mean to suggest that Zeus is on board with Achilles' um, program. It seems to be out of loyalty with Thetis. She helped him, she tells him, and and maybe that's a sign that he isn't quite as strong as he claims he is, right? That would be another reason for him to lie.
0: I mean, uh, I'm not, not to be a one-trick pony, um, but there seems to be a hierarchy of promises, right? Um, and so Zeus can kind of have his promise to Thetis and his kind of agreements with Hera and Athena as well. And then we'll just kind of see how it shakes out. Um, so that, that is, it's confusing because, you know, these are the deathless gods, right? But it almost seems like he's buying himself some time that, that maybe, you know, he, he's made the agreement to Thetis, um, and that that's going to last a while. But when he can get out of that one, maybe he can uh, then keep his promise to Hera and Athena, or at least throw them a bone while still having, you know, Thetis's request kind of in his back pocket and going back when the pressure exerts itself sufficiently going back and trying to please Thetis again. So he's trying to kind of keep everybody not unhappy or you know another thing that could potentially be happening here is that he's just trying to make sure that they don't come after him right that he needs to satisfy their desires just enough so that they don't turn on him even though he's the most powerful but like you said you know jeff he's he's doing something here to um that doesn't that that shows he's not all powerful or as all powerful as maybe we think he is So, um, maybe there is some kind of hierarchy of promises that he's managing and it's a way to buy some time.
1: So this is really interesting because we've read on this podcast books and are currently reading books, which say, or which make the claim where, where, where main characters seem to think if they become gods, the political problem will be soluble. And you're saying, Jeff, that here's an example of a God who, um, Despite immortality, which we said in our first podcast on the Iliad, separated the humans from the gods and altered their behavior, but despite immortality and despite being all powerful, doesn't get, uh, can't find his way out of certain political handcuffs, something of this nature. And so what I'm, I'm, I guess what I mean to point out here is we've, we've, we see or have learned lessons about mortals who think if I could only be a god I could solve the political problem and now we have a political lesson from a god who's who is a god and who says well I'm a god and I still have the political problem and so I guess what I'm trying to do is understand what it is about whatever Zeus's problem is and maybe uh, Cyrus from the education of Cyrus's problem was that's common such such that they face the same thing even though apparently the limits on them are vastly different in character, immortality and all powerful versus mortal and, and constrained. Does that, does that Mm -hmm. question make sense? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, I'm tempted Mm -hmm. to try to um, partition out in thought the part of the political problem that goes with mortality from the part that goes with whatever Zeus is suffering under. And I think we have to say that Zeus isn't simply all powerful, right? And so, um, and, and maybe the, the sense that he owes something to Thetis is an, is an indication that that's true, right? Um, he, he wouldn't have needed her help, and th- therefore he wouldn't owe anything in, in return for her help if he really were sufficient to himself. So I guess my, my uh, first guess would be to make this cut at something like the presence of peers, right? It's one thing to be a soul immortal, right, or an immortal among mortals, and it's another thing to have a number of immortal peers it does mean that Zeus's um, relationship for lack of a better word with the other gods is going to continue and as Brian says he's got a lot of promises right for one thing Troy will fall eventually right and so whatever he promised to Thetis has to be a um, subset or a portion of time after which what's going to happen to Troy is, is going to happen the Greek setbacks have to be temporary Right. And so why Zeus is dealing with these sorts of things, why there is history under Zeus, if I can put it that way, a series of events rather than the will of Zeus just coming to fruition immediately seems to be connected with the presence of peers. Um, And that's a portion of the political problem that's distinct from the one that arises when uh, human beings face their mortality and worry about whether they can transcend it or not. Um, So that that would be my first question. stab at it, does, does that, how satisfying does that seem to the two of you? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that, especially in
0: terms of looking at, you know, the, the, this whole thing happened after an oath to Zeus, after a truce, right? So, they, you know, the, the mortals prayed to Zeus and said, like, hey, if anybody breaks this, we you know, they are at fault and they have acted unjustly. And then Zeus breaks it, right? So the person that they look for to for justice, then just breaks breaks the truce you know without a lot of prodding without a lot of hubbub not a oh but i promised the mortals that you know that there'd be a truce it's like oh okay yeah here athena go do your thing like it's fine let them fight so uh you know so i think it reinforces your point and kind of circles back to the point that there are at least two systems of justice going on here one between mortals like mortal to mortal um that is it is pretty fuzzy right and that's partly why we're here even though priam blames the gods for that too you know priam says oh it's the god's fault that you're here helen not your fault um and then here we see again the mortals make a truce and then the gods break it which seems really weird and and this is you know what what agamemnon says in in book four uh You know, around 155, Beloved brother, the oath I cut was your death when I put you forward before the Achaeans to fight alone with the Trojans, seeing now that the Trojans have struck you and trampled underfoot the sacred treaty. Right? Well, that's, yeah, technically, technically that's true, but it's the gods' fault. The people that, you know, know, the the gods that you counted on to enforce this truce are the ones that broke it. So I I guess what what does that help, or how does that help us kind of understand the dynamics at play here?
2: Yeah, I think it is worth um, turning to think about Agamemnon because we've been encouraged to do that by a lot of the content of the first four books now. Um, I do just have one thing maybe to add to what I said that um, that just occurred to me um, regarding the connection with uh, the Cyrus problem or the Tyrant problem in Xenophon. Um, Maybe my initial separation, the two kinds of political problems, is um, supported by the way the education of Cyrus begins, that little prefatory, uh, prefatory section, preface, where uh, Xenophon says um, you know, he would have thought it was impossible to rule human beings except that there was uh, one human being that was like a god among human beings. Uh, It seems then two conditions have to be met for the political problem to seem like it's soluble. The first would be you are like a god among human beings, and the second would be there are no other gods like you among human beings, right? So you have the superior relation to the other humans. That gets you part of the solution. You seem immortal, and there are no others who are your peers. That would be the other part. Right, so that the full solution would come in the form of an omnipotent God then, right? the, uh, a soul God, there are no other gods but me sort of God. right? Um, but yeah, just regarding Agamemnon, who I think is not in that kind of position, one of the things that strikes me about that speech that you just mentioned, Brian, um, is that Agamemnon um, claims that if Menelaus dies, the Greeks will go home. Right. And he tries to switch the grounds of the Trojan War to the violation of the truce. Right. So he tries to turn this into an opportunity. Right. Well, who cares about Helen? Right. They broke the truce. Let's fight. Right. We we deserve to get everything that was promised to us and they're not abiding by the agreement. So it looks like Agamemnon has to kind of stay on top of the changing situation in terms of the kind of appeal to justice that he's making.
0: Well, this, this, is, this seems to be another point in, in favor or another parallel with Zeus is like, what, what promise do I need to make right now? You know, how can I, how can I keep this alliance in place most effectively right now? You know, Zeus says, "Yeah, I have this promise with Thetis, but Hera and Athena are really bugging me right now. So I guess I got to do something for them." Uh, so he takes that opportunity to break the truce himself. You know, to to, to be unjust if if a immortal can be unjust. And then Agamemnon kind of does the same thing, and like you said, says, "Forget about Helen. Like this is this is about the the broken truce." Um, can we talk about? Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Can we talk about
1: what is going on with the Agamemnon going through the troops? Because, and maybe just in a Homeric sense, but, you know, Jeff, you mentioned that back in book two that, uh, you know, the the listing of the armies and that kind of thing would have been both to show who's more powerful, but also a kind of a home team check. You know, you get to hear your guy, you get to hear your army. And, you know, when you hear somebody recite this thing and you're... Uh, in your town or something like that. And yeah, we were there, you know, kind of a, yeah. kind of a thing, but this is kind of similar where all the heroes are kind of lined up and it's like in a Marvel movie where all the heroes and their and the X-Men are all there. And, you know, and so I'm, I'm trying to understand, I mean, I think there's a lot of content in the actual criticisms. I mean, I think people obviously want to jump to the Odysseus one because he's, you know, the other most important character in the Homerica corpus, but um, just from a p- literary point of view, Is there something here that this is meant to accomplish? And then maybe we could take a a stab at the content of some of the of the speeches.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I have a a first guess about um, the structure as a whole, which is it's another kind of ranking like um, Helen and uh, Priam conduct from the heights of Troy looking down on the army and watching people how big they are and how much they move. And it looks like um, the, the basic ranking, the, the first cut in the heroes, and I don't think it's an exhaustive list of heroes, but it might be really close. Um, all the big names are mentioned, um, is some people are preparing and some people are standing still, right? And uh, my guess is to the meaning of standing still is it occurs to them, the people who are standing still, this could be over. Right. It's not clear that the war is going to happen, or it's not clear that the war isn't over. Right. The people who are preparing, I think they've they've figured, you know, oh, yeah, it's, it's time to fight now. And by the way, what it looks like, what they're preparing for is phalanx warfare, not the isolated hero, chariot born hero, one on one warfare. The two armies are going to clash directly and they're going to push against one another. Um, and so that that to me suggests that, um it's a kind of total commitment of the two militaries, and not this local um, attempt to get um, loot and heroism against an opposing champion that's happening at this moment. Um, but yeah, does that does that seem like uh, it makes some sense that there's a group that thinks, oh, this could be over. Let's see what happens, and a group that, that thinks, oh, oh, it's on. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the
0: yeah, and and Agam- Oh, go ahead, I was just saying, the
1: cleverest oh. man is standing still. Is that right? The, right? This arguably the smartest character in the book is standing still. Whatever we make of that, we'll get there in a minute. Go ahead, Brian.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, it's it's good that you bring up Odysseus because you know Agamemnon, I think, is at least portrayed. I mean, at this point, I don't know if he's portrayed as as unclever, um, but you know, there's certain question marks that that come up throughout the whole book of like how smart is Agamemnon. But however smart he is, his instincts are right in this situation, I think, which is, you know, at at 220, uh, while they attended to Menelaus of the war cry, all the while the ranks of shield bearing Trojans drew near. So the Trojans know what's up, and the Trojans are coming at him, right? And so what you have to do in that situation is not let the enemy gain the initiative. And so Agamemnon immediately. With with no hesitation, uh, you know. So it's and the Achaeans again put on their armor and recollected their fighting spirit. Well, that's, that's not all of them. Um, then you would not have seen Godlike Agamemnon dozing or cowering or reluctant to fight, but rather rushing to battle where men win glory, which is exactly what you should be doing in a situation where the enemy is approaching you. Because you know, we in Marine Corps land we just talk about like going internal you know when you're kind of worried about what's going on with you or what's going on with your troops or what's going on with your people like somebody's wounded you know you kind of all gather around and look at them the enemy's out there and so you got to get external fast and and go like well, the, no the enemy's over there like we can we can worry about this later like the doc's got it like let's let's get these let's get after it uh, and agamemnon does exactly that and so it's I guess the thing that I kind of take from from this uh, book, and is how deftly Agamemnon kind of uses speech to try to get what he wants right like this it was it's kind of shocking reading this because you know when you don't when you haven't read it for a while and you're like oh Agamemnon's such a dick (laughs) you know and then but he's so like oh my brother's wounded oh get the doc get the doc and get the best doc go get the go get the really good doc because we had to take care of this guy right and that's kind of weird, but then you see that all the other generals are gathered around, mm-hmm. and so on some kind of humanistic level, you're like, oh man, if I get wounded, hopefully he's, you know, that aggressive in taking care of me. So that's kind of cool, um, but then immediately he runs out and he's given different speeches to different guys, uh, which is another great kind of leadership one-on-one thing. There's a beautiful book for for our for our listeners called from the horse's mouth thoughts on small unit leadership. It's really good. Um, The one story in there is too long to really fully recount, but it's basically like if you have three leaders, um, you know, you underneath you, which is kind of normal, you can't give them all the same op order, you know, like you have to treat people as individuals. Uh, And so he runs around and kind of gives a different op order to every person. And some is like, yeah, you're already ready. Great. Good job. And other ones like, what are you doing? sitting on your ass, Like, you know, these guys are coming. Like, are you just going to chill? You're just going to sit there? Uh, You're going to let other people do the fighting? So he manages his interaction with his other, you know, subordinate commanders in a way that is kind of designed or he thinks, you know, is going to get the best
2: performance out of them. There's maybe a helpful contrast with something that happened in book two. You remember Odysseus goes around trying to stem the tide of the Greek flight back to the ships after Agamemnon has made this odd move of testing the, the um, spirit of the Greek troops. And um, Odysseus has a two-mode kind of address, right? He'll rebuke the human beings who are uh, not lordly, right? Um, and he'll, he'll strike at them. And then the ones that are lordly, he'll use, um, you know, kind of more, uh, at least he he won't lay hands on them. He'll use more uh, appeals to their pride, right? But it looks like it's an either-or approach uh, for um, Odysseus. Uh, It looks like Agamemnon, he has a general mode of address to anybody who seems to be holding back, which is to ridicule them for being dazed by the turn of events. But then he's got particular ways of addressing his leaders based on, you know, what he uh, judges, uh, each of their circumstances is. Um, and so maybe that's more impressive in some ways than what Odysseus was doing, although Odysseus was effective.
1: Yeah, I guess we I know we have to shut it down. But wouldn't wouldn't would be a mistake not to say something about Odi- what he says to Odysseus. And I mean, come on, this is like one of the greatest hits. And so I just point out, so he says, He says to Odysseus um, around line 340, uh, why do you stand here skulking aside and wait for the others? And, you know, goes on and and Odysseus responds. I don't understand Odysseus, uh, the response. I wonder if either of you do. This is at line 350. What is this word that broke through the fence of your teeth, Atreides? How can you say that we Achaeans waken the bitter war god on Trojans, breakers of horses? I hang back uh, when we do. I hang back from fighting. Only watch if you are, if you care and if it concerns you, the very father of Telemachus locked with the champion Trojans breakers of horses. Your talk is wind and no meaning. And then Agamemnon, this is what I don't understand. Agamemnon laughs and says, son of Laertes and seed of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus, I must not be niggling with you, nor yet give you orders, since I know how the spirit in your secret heart knows ideas of kindness only for what you think is what I think. I don't know what that means I, I just don't I don't
2: know what the words mean and so it maybe that's
1: a bad translation
2: yeah <laughs> no it's my mine is not different I would I, and I don't know enough Greek to say it's a bad translation. Um, let me take a stab at it see if you guys think this is the right um, reading. uh just because I'm standing here doesn't mean that I won't fight when it's time is what Odysseus says and Agamemnon says you're right, I know you're the kind of guy who hides things, and I'm confident, I'll trust you, that what you're hiding is um, friendly to me, right? In other words, when the time comes, you won't hang back, right? And the thing that makes me trust you is that I made you angry, or I seemed to make you angry, right? so, yeah, what what do you do? I mean, this is maybe another small unit question, Brian. What do you do when you have a, a right-hand man, a henchman, who is clever at hiding things? I mean, really clever at hiding <laughs> things. Uh, and you command this person. In fact, you this person is your uh, XO, right, is your right hand, is doing stuff for you. How do you manage a person like that?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting to kind of like watch it, it seems like almost a dance between the two of them. You know, and my translation is is it starts Odysseus starts off or then looking at him from under his brows resourceful Odysseus addressed him son of atreus what kind of word has escaped the barrier of your teeth. Right? So we get the stage direction which is like, all right, Odysseus, your your motivation right now is you're pissed off. So you're going to kind of like furrow your brow and kind of stare at this dude like, and then go like, what the fuck did you just say? Uh, but do it, do it in a way that's like, you're blaming the words. You know, the words are the, the things that are acting in that sentence, not Agamemnon. What words escaped your teeth? So he's disassociating Agamemnon from the action and just blaming the words. And then, you know, uh, then smiling on him, Lord Agamemnon addressed him as he knew he was angry and he took back his word, right? So now the word is acting again. He takes it back. Son of Laertes, descended from Zeus, Odysseus of many strategies, I neither rebuke you needlessly nor give you orders, right? I mean, what a way to chill things out. I'm not even giving you an order. I wouldn't think to do that. Uh, For I know that the spirit in your breast is well-disposed intentions, for you think the same things I do, for you think the same things I do, right? And then we saw at the sacrifice uh, that, you know, Agamemnon pops up, you know, and and, and takes the initiative to to slaughter the, the sheep and resourceful Odysseus is right next to him, seemingly like knowing what he's doing. And supporting him in that act. So they I think that they have a certain implicit communication um, and that this is them kind of, I don't know, doing what maybe they, usu- they do occasionally, which is kind of butt heads a little bit. But then Agamemnon backs off and he goes, I'm not giving you orders. I'm not rebuking you, you know? And, and, you know, but come, we will redress these matters later. If anything unworthy has been said now, may the gods make all these things come to nothing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that there if, is going to be a little push-pull. Yeah. That
2: if, by the way, is interesting. It, it, it indicates to me that Agamemnon doesn't simply back down because I take the formulation to be something like this. Um, if you actually fight when it comes time, then it will turn out that harsh words were spoken and may the gods make it come to nothing. But if you don't fight, then these words will not be harsh, they'll be appropriate, and then there'll be a reckoning, right? So it's not as if Agamemnon simply says, hey, I'm satisfied. He says, we'll see. And doesn't Odysseus crush some heads?
1: (laughs) He does. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's probably a good point to wrap up book four. So we've got the gods and their kind of alliance keeping, or whatever we're gonna call, we've got Agamemnon and his kind of alliance keeping. We have these questions of justice. What is it? How does it relate between mortals? How does it relate between the mortal and immortal? And what promises are we supposed to keep and, and when? So lots of lots of super easy stuff so far. A lot of the real real easy real easy stuff. Um, so uh, any any final points from you guys? Good dismount there. Okay, I'll yeah, take I think it. Think so. Uh.
2: Just that we've we've got uh, something to look forward to next time, which is a uh, hero we haven't talked a lot about, Diomedes. He got rebuked, and he uh, thought it was right for him to get rebuked, and we're going to see his display of his excellence next time. Yeah that's that's good
0: that's a good point because that's gonna yeah diomedes is gonna play a bigger role here shortly cool all right well thanks shiloh thanks jeff thank you listener uh you can follow us on all the socials at combat and classics we are also doing uh in parallel to the iliad we are doing the uh, anabasis or anabasis whichever way you want to do that by xenophon uh, and so you can check that out on our feed as well so thanks guys and uh, look forward to book five
2: Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks so much.